Well, we're going to read the Bible together now, and we're turning to 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 23. Uh, you'll find it on page 330 over into page 331 of the Pew Bibles. Uh, we have quite a long reading tonight. Uh, we're going to read for 2 Kings uh, 23, verse 1 down to verse 30. And this chapter is going to tell us about all of the reforms that godly King Josiah uh, brought into Judah during his reign. So 2 Kings chapter 23, we're beginning at verse 1 and we're reading down to verse 30. And our reading begins on page 330 of the Pew Bibles. This is God's word to us. Then the king sent and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the host of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and round Jerusalem, those also who, who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon and the constellations and all the hosts of heaven, and he brought out of the Asher from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord where, where the women wove hangings for the Asherah. And he brought all the, brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings from Geba to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on one's left at the gate of the city. However, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brothers. And he defiled Topeth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnon, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. And he, and he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance to the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Melech, the chamberlain, which was in the precincts. And he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. And the altars on the roof of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars that Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord, he pulled down and broke in pieces and cast the dust of them into the brook Kidron. And the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had, had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians, and for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And he broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the Asherim and filled their places with the bones of men. Moreover, the altar at Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, that altar with the high place he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He also burnt, burned the Asherah. And as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs there on the mount, 
and he sent and took the bones out of the, out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it, according to the word of the Lord that the man of God proclaimed who had predicted these things. Then he said, what is that monument I see? And the men of the city told him, it is the tomb of the man of God who came from Bethel and predicted these things that you have done against the altar at Bethel. And he said, let him be, let no man move his bones. So they left his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came out of Samaria. And Josiah removed all the shrines also of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which kings of Israel had made, provoking the Lord to anger. He did to them according to all that he had done at Bethel, and he sacrificed all the priests of the high places who were, who were there on the altars and burned human bones on them. Then he returned to Jerusalem. We're in verse 21. And the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in this book of the covenant. For no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel or during all the days of the kings of Israel or of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of, of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might establish the words of the law, the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any, any like him arise after him. Still, the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath, by which his anger was kindled against Judah, because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight, as I have removed Israel, and I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates. King Josiah went to meet him, and Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo as soon as he saw him. And his servants carried him dead in a chariot from Megiddo and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. And the people of the land took Jehoaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in his father's place. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this evening. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Second Kings 23. It's page 330 over into 331 of the Pew Bibles. And as you're turning to that passage, let's pray briefly together. Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for what we've learned from the life of King Josiah so far, and we pray that as we wrap this series up, that you would speak to us through his life and his example, but most of all, that you'd point us to our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Help us to realize that Jesus is enough for us, he has rescued us, he has saved us, and he calls us to follow him. Help us tonight. As we look at your word, come by your spirit and speak to all of our hearts, we pray. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, this evening we're wrapping this series up on King Josiah. It's been a short series, but we've seen it a lot through Josiah's story already. Uh, you'll know that Josiah's story is paralleled in the book of Second Chronicles. Basically, 
Uh, one person wrote both First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, and someone else wrote First and Second Chronicles. The division in those books, by the way, is for our ease. It's to make them easier to read, but they're all one book in the original. The, the, the chronicler records the history of Israel and Judah with a positive slant. He points out what kings did right and how they obeyed the Lord. The author of Kings, though, we're, we're in Second Kings, the author of Kings comes at it from a slightly different perspective. He, he points out what the kings of Israel and Judah did wrong and essentially says to his readers, don't make the same mistakes. Josiah is a godly king who comes right before Judah goes into exile. And one of the things that we've kind of touched on so far and commented on so far in this mini-series are the mysterious ways of God. Do you ever find the ways of God mysterious? Uh, the, the mysterious ways and workings of God are, are perfectly illustrated in Josiah's life and background. Do you ever struggle with God's ways? Why you have to endure hardship and trials? Why evil is allowed in our world today? Why it is that some people believe and others don't? Josiah's story illustrates it well. Think about it. How is it that wicked Ahaz, you can read all about him in 2 Kings 16. Why is it that wicked Ahaz has a son like Hezekiah? The godly Hezekiah who makes so many good changes and reforms within the spiritual life of the nation. It's a strange thing. An ungodly home produces a saintly child. You'd think wickedness would produce wickedness, but not with God. You'd also assume that godliness would produce godliness, but again, that's not necessarily the case. Who is the son of godly Hezekiah? Well, it's none other than, none other than wicked Manasseh, the one whose rebellion dooms Judah to exile and judgment. He was likely brought up in a devout home, but he's a prodigal. And then there's Amon. He didn't last long, as we know. He was king for just two years. But out of the chaos of his life and reign comes godly Josiah. The Bible often highlights the mysterious ways of God. There's something about how God works that we simply can't understand. Manasseh's conversion is another example. He lives wickedly, disgracefully for most of his life, but he's converted, converted before his death. Ultimately, that's showing us that <clears throat> faith in the Lord has, has nothing to do with genetics and someone else's belief in the Lord isn't passed down in the way that physical attributes are. But God's ways are, myster are mysterious. But yet he's sovereign. He's in control of all things and he's working his purposes out in our world today. And that's also clear from the account of Josiah's life. Judah is on the brink of exile but God has determined that there will be one last period of spiritual blessing before the horror of exile comes. We're coming even closer to that point as we move into 2 Kings 23. What we're going to do tonight is a little bit different to what we've done in, uh, previously in this mini-series. In 2 Kings 23, we have the details of all the changes Josiah made while he was king. And as we read the passage earlier, you maybe thought, well, all of this seems a little bit distant. There's a lot of burning. There's a lot of destruction. What, what is going on? What, what Josiah does in spiritual terms is very significant. He, he essentially brings about a reformation in the land and the worship of God is completely transformed. That was what, that was what happened in the reformation of the 1500s. The worship of God was completely transformed. So what we're going to do this evening is I'm going to explain Josiah's reformation and once we've understood what happens and what he does, we're going to pull out some big applications from the last godly king of Judah. 
You might already have your Bible open, but it'll be really helpful at this point if you open to 2 Kings 23 and follow along with me. What, what I want you to see is the thoroughness of, of Josiah's reforms. To help with that, let's take a brief walk through verses 4 to 20. One writer in this passage suggests that these verses are Josiah's 12-step demanassification program. So this is Josiah's anti-manasse manifesto. And there are 12 things that change under Josiah's reign. Let me show you them. First of all, the the first reform comes in verse 4. Pagan vessels are removed from the temple and they're actually burned as well. Secondly, pagan clergy are sacked and removed. So that's verse 5. So all the pagan ministers are gone. Scram, get out of here. They take their robes and run. Thirdly, the Asherah image is smashed into smithereens in verse 6. Now, the Asherah was particularly bad because, as we noted in our first sermon in this series, it was the symbol of the fertility goddess, and it was in the temple. Manasseh introduced it, and it was like taking a mistress and have her live in the family home. Josiah removes the mistress. Reform number four comes in verse seven. The temple apartments belonging to male prostitutes are wrecked. You're maybe only now beginning to get a sense of how far from the Lord Judah really was. The fifth reform is that Judah's high places are defiled and more priests are sacked, verses eight and nine. In verse verse 10, uh, Topheth is desecrated. Why is that a reform? Well, it's the place where children were sacrificed to Molech. Judah had a problem with sun worship. Josiah fixed that with his seventh reform. Sun worship paraphernalia is removed and destroyed in verse 11. We're on to number eight now. Idolatrous altars made by previous kings are smashed in verse 12. As well as being wise, Solomon was really stupid spiritually speaking. He built things that he shouldn't have built. And Josiah came and eliminated the the offending structures. That's reform number nine. And you can see it in verse 13. Number 10 is that the young king destroyed the props for fertility worship. Verse 14. Reform 11. We're nearly there. Is that Jeroboam's Bethel worship center is pulled down and ruined in verses 15 and 16. And then last but not, not least, reform number 12 sees a purge throughout northern cities. It's pretty clinical. Look look at what verses 19 and 20 tell us. And Josiah removed all the shrines also of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which kings of Israel had made, provoking the Lord to anger. He did to them according to all that he had done at Bethel, and he sacrificed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned human bones on them. Then he returned to Jerusalem. How to reform a nation in 12 simple steps. Put an end to all the paganism and idolatry. Stop all the immorality. Don't allow child sacrifice. And for good measure, don't encourage witchcraft. That wasn't included in our list of 12, but it's mentioned in verse 24. There's another reform that we haven't mentioned, but we'll get to it towards the end of our time. So what are we to learn from that? Simply that Josiah's demonassification program was very, very thorough. And that Judah was in a very dark place spiritually by the end of his, by the time of Josiah's reign. Rattling through it, th- through that list, ha- highlights the damage Manasseh inflicted on the nation. Well, when you understand it in that way, in the way that we've understood it, it's no wonder that judgment was promised, that exile was coming for Judah. The question for us tonight, though, is 
Well, what can we learn from Josiah and his reformation? We're going to think through four broad points, and they'll help us understand how Josiah's story connects with us. Here's the first. Godliness in the Christian life is critical. Godliness in the Christian life is critical. In the previous two sermons, I've said the same thing twice, and I'm going to say it again this week. A key principle of biblical interpretation is that Israel in the Old Testament is replaced by the New Testament church. They're both described as the people of God. The stories in the Old Testament, therefore, have a direct application to the church. Sometimes you'll hear preachers say that Old Testament figures are great examples, uh, examples for us to follow. The, the, the problem with saying that is that we'll never match Abram's faith or Moses' faith or David's faith. When you read Old Testament stories, the application for you won't be found in looking at the hero of the story. More often than not, the hero's pointing us to Jesus. The application for you in Old Testament stories will be found in the response of the people of God, the people of Israel and Judah. Now, how were the people of God living in, in, in the nation? How, how were the people of God living during the time of Josiah? Well, they were steeped in paganism and idolatry and all sorts of sin. Josiah booted out all the rogue priests and ministers, as we saw a moment ago. The point is that godliness wasn't considered important throughout the nation. Manasseh is blamed on bringing judgment on Judah, but there was a long line of disobedience from countless nameless people whose stories we've never heard. But at the same time, the nation's rejection of God stemmed from a rejection of God at the top. More often than not, when a king led Israel or Judah into sin, the people followed. So flick back to 2 Kings 21 verse 9 to see what's said of people in Manasseh's day. Manasseh's a bad king. What did the people do? But they did not listen to the Lord. And Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done, whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. On the other hand, Josiah comes along and trusts the Lord and leads the nation in repentance and makes lots of important reforms. When a king led Israel or Judah in a godly way, blessing followed. The, the, the lesson for the people of God then and now is that godliness in the Christian life is critical. For us on this side of the cross, godliness in church leadership is critical that's a timely reminder for us as we're on the cusp of an eldership election. We're going to unpack what it means to be a godly leader over the next few Sundays. But Josiah is a very good example of an Old Testament believer who lives a godly life. We'll not match him in terms of faith, but some of the things he does are helpful things for us to aspire to and to seek to replicate. Here's a question for you. When does Josiah follow the Lord? The author of Kings doesn't tell us but the chronicler does. Listen to 2 Chronicles 34, verse 3. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of, his, of David his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim and the carved and, and the metal images. So in the eighth year of his reign, in other words, when Josiah was 16 years old, he becomes king when he's eight. Eighth year of his reign, he's 16 he began to seek the God of David, his father. He has a deep spiritual experience, a conversion experience, if you like. And that's connected with what happens in the 12th year of his reign, when he was 20 years old. He began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of idolatry. So when does Josiah follow the Lord? 
while he was yet a boy, while he's young. When's the best time for you to follow the Lord? It's now. If you're, if you're a young person here tonight, the best time for you to follow the Lord is now. You may be thinking, I'll serve God later. When I get older, I'm going to have fun in the meantime. I'll miss out on stuff now if I follow God. I'll postpone the decision until I'm older. Josiah sought God in his youth. You should serve God in your youth. One of the keys to Josiah's fruitfulness was the fact that he began early. He followed God while he was young. And that meant that he didn't have, have deep spiritual scars. He didn't carry the scars of sin around with him. So, so sometimes young people think, I'll go wild when I'm young and then I'll settle down and do the God thing later, just like that person did. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't happen like that. We will not match Josiah in terms of faith, but he follows the Lord in his youth. And if you're a young person here tonight, that's really important to see. Josiah's godliness set the nation in a certain direction too. It's sometimes said, as goes the leadership, so goes the business or company or government or team. It's true of the church as well. As goes the leadership, so goes the church. If the leadership of a church is not going in the right direction, not chasing after the things of God, then something is wrong. Godliness in the Christian life is critical. The, the, the second broad point we see from Josiah's life generally, and chapter, three, uh, chapter 23 specifically, is that the battle against idolatry is never ending. The battle against idolatry is never ending. What does Josiah do in 2 Kings 23? He tears down all the idols the people of God were following. He tears them down. He smashes them into smithereens. Well, what, what's notable in 2 Kings 23 is the repeated use of the word defiling. Pops up in verse 8, verse 10, verse 13, and verse 16. The high places are defiled. Topeth is defiled. Pagan altars are defiled. You probably don't use the word defiled very often, but it's a very strong word. The, the sense it gives us is that Josiah damaged the appearance of the idols in the land. He destroyed them. He put them to ruin. He, he, he had to unpick a lot of idolatry. And that list of 12 reforms shows us the layers of idolatry that had built up in the nation. There was progression downward into sin. And the lesson for us is that we are in a constant battle against idolatry. Now, the thing is, the idols of our day are not the same as the idols of Josiah's day. There aren't altars and high places where people go and worship. Although if you don't buy at the altar of freedom of sexual expression today, you're considered a very bad person. Idolatry in our day is much more subtle. The Bible is really clear that everyone worships something. And naturally, we're the people Paul describes in Romans 1.25 who have served the creature rather than the creator. Anything that we serve instead of God is a created thing, an idol. Money, reputation, power, career, family, and so on. All very good things, but all things that we can turn into God things. Our hearts can get kidnapped. When we worship an idol, we turn God into a divine waiter. He's there to deliver our dead dream to us. We check in with him on a Sunday. We put our order in via prayer. But God is essentially there to give us what we feel we need, our idol. And we get furious with him if he doesn't deliver. Now, that might all seem a bit foreign to you but it's maybe because it's so subtle. You've never seen that in yourself 
or understood sin and idolatry in that way. If we're serious about following the Lord, we need to keep a close watch on the idols of our heart. Calvin said that our hearts are like a, are, are like a perpetual idol factory. In other words, our, our hearts churn out idols like a factory churns out machinery or clothes or food. To help you keep an eye on your idols, here are some good questions to ask yourself. What do I daydream about? Your idols are the things that in reality you care most about having, increasing or keeping. So what do you daydream about? What do you have nightmares about? Our idols are the things that we fear losing the most. The things we can't imagine living without. The things that keep us awake at night worrying. Well, what do you pray about? If there's something we pray for more than God's will to be done in our lives and the lives of our loved ones, it's likely to be an idol. If your prayer for your children or grandchildren is that they'll be happy or healthy or married or successful, rather than that they'll know Jesus and live for him, then you're worshiping an idol. What do you need in life that, if you get it, means you'll start living for God? If you find yourself thinking, I'll obey God once I've got fill in the blank, then the end of that sentence is your idol. Again, you may be thinking, that's all very removed. It's all very distant from me. But the New Testament talks about taking idolatry seriously as well. Just listen to 1 John 5, 21. It's the final verse of John's first letter. This is what he says. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. John says, keep yourself from trusting, obeying, revering, following, and worshiping anyone or anything that God, anything other than God himself and his son, Jesus Christ. In other words, understand that the battle against idolatry is never ending. Josiah is really thorough when it comes to removing idolatry in the land. Did you notice the detail in verse 20? It's a throwaway line, but we're told, then he'd return to Jerusalem. The high places, the altars, the idols have been defiled and Josiah went and did it himself. He went on a tour of the country to destroy the idols in the land. He took idolatry seriously. It's part of what makes him such a godly king. He knew that the battle against idolatry was never ending and that it required him to get his hands dirty. Are you willing to get your hands dirty by clearing away the idolatry in your life, in your heart? The battle is never ending. And if you allow idolatry to build up, you're going to end up in layers and layers of sin. Godliness in the Christian life is critical. The, the battle against idolatry is never ending. And thirdly, God always works through his word. That's the third thing we see broadly in this chapter and in Josiah's story. God always works through his word. Jo jo Josiah's reformation comes in obedience to the Lord's word. The key to understanding this comes from the beginning of chapter 23. Let's read verses 1 to 3 again. We're told, Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord, and the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul 
to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. The, those verses are, are, are really quite long. You read them and you kind of think, well, there's so much detail here. And actually, the writers are saying the same thing over and over again. But the author of Kings emphasizes the fact that the king renewed the covenant and followed the word. He followed the word, he followed the word, he obeyed the law. The reading and responding to the book of the law are emphasized too. Jo Josiah obeyed the word with his heart and soul. This is a determination not to turn either to the right or to the left, but to pursue the path of obedience to the word of God. And what happens is God's people respond to God's word. There's a set of radical reforms that change the worship of God in the land. God is working through his word in his people. It's the way that he always works. It's the way that he promises to work. And his word is utterly trustworthy and reliable. There's actually evidence of that in verses 15 to 20. There's mention of an altar at Bethel. Josiah takes action against cult practices. And what he does is the fulfillment of a prophecy that's in 1 Kings 13 verse 2. God had promised that something would happen and it took around 300 years for it to happen, but it still happened. His word is utterly reliable. His word never falls to the ground. It will infallibly come true. That's good for us to know as we begin another church season. As the word goes out through our congregation, through our organizations, we, we can rest assured that God will work through it as it's explained and taught and lived out. Godliness in the Christian life is critical. The battle against idolatry is never ending. God always works through his word. L living as a Christian is really important. Battling against sin is vital. Immersing ourselves in the scriptures is the best thing we can do. Jo Josiah's story actually speaks to us about the ordinary things in the Christian life. Reminds us of, of what we're to do as followers of Jesus. And ultimately, Josiah's story points us to the greater king who would one day come. That, that, that's our, our fourth broad point this evening. Josiah couldn't save his people, only his descendant can. Josiah couldn't save his people, only his descendant can. There was one reform that we skipped. It comes in verses 21 to 23. Just look at what we're told. And the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in this book of the covenant, for no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel or during all the days of the kings of Israel or of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. Among Josiah's many reforms, the key reform was the reinstitution of the Passover. This was a key celebration and memorial for Israel, but one which strangely hadn't been kept since the days of the judges. It's a sign of where the nation was spiritually. Their most important celebration wasn't held. The New Testament parallel is communion. Imagine a church not having a communion service for a couple of hundred years. The Passover was instituted when God graciously and powerfully redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt. He passed over the home of every Israelite whose doorway was smeared with blood to spare the firstborn from his wrath. The, the, the reinstitution of the Passover by Josiah is a major sign and anticipation of the salvation that would one day be accomplished by Jesus. What is it that Paul says of Christ in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7? 
he says that Jesus is our final Passover lamb. By his blood, all who take refuge in him are spared from the wrath of God. Josiah was a good king, a godly king, but he was still a sinner. His life and example point us forward to the greater king who would come to rescue his people, the, the one who never turned from the right or to the left, but who perfectly and completely followed the plan of his father for his life, the one who shed his blood also that we might know him. That's the thing about Old Testament heroes. They're great examples, but in many cases, they're just as flawed as we are. But they remind us of Jesus, perfect, precious Jesus, the one who saves us from our sin, the one who will one day welcome us into his heaven. If you've never trusted him, if you're not trusting him tonight, you should really think about doing so. As I said this morning, if you want to talk about these things, if you want to talk about the gospel, responding to Christ, trusting in him for the first time, please just get in touch. Second Kings 23 tells us that godliness in the Christian life is critical, that the battle against idolatry is never-ending, that God always works through his word, but it also points us to Jesus because Josiah couldn't save his people, only his descendant can. The, the final chapters of Kings record Judah's fall into exile. They're harrowing chapters. You should go home and read them tonight. But that's Josiah, a godly king. The, there was no king like him in the history of God's people, before him or after him. And he died, as was promised, before the exile came. God was faithful to his word, as he always is. Josiah's life calls us to obedience to the Lord. His life calls us to follow Jesus faithfully and wholeheartedly. But it also points us to the grace that's found in Christ and in Christ alone. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the life of godly King Josiah. And we thank you for the lessons that we have thought through tonight. We pray that you'd help us to live godly and upright lives if we're following Jesus. That we, that we would realize that our battle against idolatry and sin is a, is a serious battle. It's a never-ending battle. Help us to fight against the, the natural instinct of our hearts. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it's a source of light and life. And we pray that we would be constantly aware that you're the God who works through your word. As we read your word ourselves, as we open the word in church, you work on our hearts to make us more like Christ. And we thank you for that simple reminder that although Josiah was a good and godly king, he wasn't perfect. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he was that he was the final perfect Passover lamb and that through him we can know you and have life in all of its fullness. We pray that those who haven't yet trusted in Christ would turn to him tonight, would, return, would turn to him in repentance and faith and know the true and lasting joy that's found only in him. So we thank you for this godly king and his story as it's recorded for us in your word. We pray that his story would equip us and send us out to live godly and upright lives. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.